0: He currently teaches hip hop Am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah that's good, I keep, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. hip say Like you say it hip hop hip But I want to say the hopcracy. I want to pronounce all of it. Um, hip-hop and black culture at Temple University, of course, designed to lead students into in-depth analysis of hip-hop as a cultural expression as well as an understanding of the relevance of hip-hop's role as the preeminent modern black aesthetic. Professor Welbeck's legal practice concentrates on the areas of consumer debt settlement, criminal defense, family law, intellectual property, specifically entertainment law, and personal injury. Uh, Professor Welbeck graduated from the Villanova University School of Law in 2009, where he was awarded the Deirdre Bailey Scholarship and Raymond J. Harris Scholarship. He graduated cum laude from Morehouse College, where he was awarded the Corella and Bertrand Bonner Scholarship the Hope Scholarship and the Oprah Winfrey Scholarship. Prior to attending law school, he served as the college preparatory coordinator for Breakthrough Atlanta, where he produced high quality, cost efficient college preparatory programming focused on preparing underserved students in the Atlanta area for matriculation into competitive (laughs) high schools and competitive undergraduate institutions. Before moving to the Philadelphia area, he also taught a religion course at the Lovett School in Atlanta. Timothy Welbeck is also a husband, and um, some of you saw the, the picture of his cute little girl and father, who writes and records about the joys of fulfilling those roles. He maintains a blog, which is called Kind of Red, where he writes about faith, race, culture, politics, relationships, pressing social issues, and things that make him smile. You may find more of his work by visiting his site, which is www paintedred.net. And you may learn more about his law practice by visiting www.EmmanuelLawFirm.com. I met um, Timothy Welbeck when he was here at Villanova and was really interested in all the stuff that he was doing and trying to put together so many things to sort of explore um, various cultural (coughs) phenomena. As I said today, his lecture is titled Reflection Eternal. Hip-Hop and American Folk Art birthed in Africa. Join me in welcoming Timothy
1: wall. And so it begins. Thank you for that gracious introduction, Dr. Lucky. Do you want the lights
0: out?
1: We don't have, can you all see this well enough? Or if not, we can turn the lights out. Or maybe we can the Okay, yeah, we can do partial. My computer's still not acting like it has a brain, but, you know, it'll be okay. And we can work around that. So, here we go. Oh, a few slideshow, so let's do it like that, so we don't see all this ugly stuff. There we go. So, as Dr. Lucky said, my name is Timothy Welbett, and I am an attorney. I'm a college professor. I'm a recording artist. And my introduction to hip-hop is a bit of an unconventional one. And what I mean by that is my parents were introduced to hip-hop through the musings of Two Live Crew, as in the scrubbed Ground variety. If you don't know, don't worry about it. You've saved yourself from needing to give your ears a bath. But anyway, so my parents heard that, and they said if that's what hip-hop is, there will be none of it in our home. And so naturally I gravitated towards their collections of gospel and soul and jazz and R&B and things like that until when I was a teenager my cousin came to visit and while I was at school she happened to stumble upon a hip-hop station and I came home and she's playing it and I said I don't remember the name of the artist I don't remember the name of the song but the song gripped me and spoke to me in ways that other music that I had listened to had not previously and so with that in mind I was hooked instantly and began listening and I kind of retroactively tried to catch up on all the things that I had missed out on and things like that and so and as I began doing that and, and looking at hip-hop more in a more detailed fashion as the years passed on I began to see that part of the reason why hip-hop gripped me in such a way that other genres had not prior was because hip-hop was my generation's representation and reinterpretation of the cultural norms and cultural expressions of our parents and their parents and their parents and so on and so forth so in me listening to Soul and me listening to jazz, and me listening to gospel, and me listening to all these other things, I was listening to the parents, and the grandparents, and the great-grandparents of hip-hop. And so, that was my introduction to hip-hop. Most of the world was introduced to hip-hop in 1979 with Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight. And it was kind of flabbergasting when it first came out. And the reason why I say that is because you get three guys from New Jersey that no one's ever heard of before, they don't sing, there's no melody, and they put together this song that's 15, minutes. it's about 15 minutes long, it's 14 minutes and 30, 36 seconds long, and it hits the radio and they won't stop playing it in its entirety. There are some black stations across the country that are playing it literally back to back to back to back to back. So. You played four, time, play four times and an hour of uh, radio time is filled up and gone away and, and you've only played one song. And so that is how most of the world began to know what this whole thing called hip hop was. And we'll take a listen. I'm, I'm certain most of you have heard the song before, but you know, it's still worth listening to. So we'll, ta- we'll take a ma- moment and listen to Rapper's Delight. If I can get my computer to play. Okay, since it doesn't want to play, we'll talk some more about it. So, <laughs> Sylvia Robinson was an independent record executive in New York in 1979, and her and other people like Bobby Robinson and, and Paul Winely, they were beginning to hear about this whole phenomenon, this rap phenomenon, and, and, it's, and most people were, at, the, at that point in time, weren't taking it too seriously. It was basically teenagers in the Bronx coming together in parks, on street corners, things of that nature, and a DJ would, would put on a breakbeat and people would scat and make up things off the top of their head, but no one really took it seriously, but as it's beginning to progress, record execs as record execs do see a gold mine in it, and they're, so they start scouting New York and other places looking for talent, and Sylvia Robinson just so happens to stumble upon one of the members of, who would eventually become the Sugar Hill Gang, and he auditions for her, and she likes what she hears, they bring the other members of the group, they borrow some lyrics from a few people, throw together some lyrics that they had, they record the song in one take, and what happened from there introduced the world to something that had been happening for almost 10 years prior. In 1973, in the South Bronx, there was a man named Clive Campbell. He was actually a teenager at this point. Him and his sister wanted to have a party like most teenagers do. So they get together, the end of the summer, Cindy Campbell, that's Clive Campbell's sister, she says, you know what, I think we can, I think, you know, if I, if I take my paycheck, I can rent out the rec room in our building. We can use half my paycheck for renting the room. We can use the other half for flyers. If we get maybe a hundred people to come out, we'll more than make our money back. And so, they do that, and as legend has it, hip-hop was born that night. They throw this party together, and their primary motivation at that point was very simple. Cindy Campbell wanted new clothes for school. <laughs> the school year is coming up. It's August. She wants to be fly when the school year starts, and you know, and she doesn't want to have on the same thing everybody else has. Clive Campbell, whom the world will come to know as Cool Herc, was an emerging DJ, and he wanted people to know that he was the baddest man on the ones and twos. At that point in time, it was just one. People weren't really using the two turntables at this point. But anyway. So anyway, at this point they come together and they they spark this whole thing called hip-hop. And we we talked about this whole idea of hip-hop coming together and being born on this night because many of the things that we've come to realize and and readily associate with hip-hop, DJing, rapping, breaking, a lot of those things were emerging in a in one place at one time and then it began to spread. And so with that we talk about hip-hop. I call hip-hop an American folk our birth in Africa. And the reason why I say that is America champions itself as the bastion of of liberty, the the it it, it and an experiment, the great experiment in democracy. And and in so doing, we have this sense of, uh, of diversity coming together. We call ourselves the great melting pot of society. A pluribus unum is on is the motto on our great seal. And, Consequently, most of the export of our cultures have origins that are not on this continent, but they come from other continents and other people groups and things of that nature. And with that in mind, hip-hop is no different. I like to say hip-hop was born in Africa, and I'm, I'm not saying that people were spinning on their heads and saying "Yes, yes, all, y'all," <laughs> on the original West coast. But what I am saying is the essential elements of hip-hop were birthed, fr- were birthed in Africa and extended ap- along this long evolution of African cultural expressions and traditions and rituals that were persevered throughout time. And we come to 1973, and and they're exploding and reinterpreted. And so in that regard, I call hip-hop the rose that grew from the concrete of the sidewalk of the South Bronx, whose roots extend across the Atlantic. And so with that, when we talk about hip-hop, when I I first began my class at hip-hop, we often I often begin with the whole idea of what is hip-hop, because a lot of times people have conflicting views. So some people will say hip-hop is who you are, it's a way of life, it's how you eat, it's how you breathe, it's how you speak. Some people will say it's just music, some people say it's who I am, and all these other things, but really with that, it's, it's difficult to really talk about hip-hop in a clear and concise way without really defining what it is, and so with that said, I want to play two songs that kind of show just how wide-ranging the whole classification of hip-hop can be. Many of you are familiar with this first song. It's from the one, the only, Miss Lauren Hill. Hopefully, this will play. If not, I will play around with my computer and pull this up. Because I would like us to hear this. It's a great song. Absolutely. <laughs> you know what? That is an, an, an interesting...
0: With the you turn it up, when you it up, you'll see it. See
1: it? Oh. How it's did I It is muted. Unmuted. As you can see, I'm not the most technologically savvy. I don't know how to unmute my computer or unmute this. What did I do? Okay, we'll figure it out. Let's let's find myself first. I can spell, I promise.
0: Did you hit a mute on your
1: actual computer That's very strange. Let's see. Store, advance. You see what happened? Okay. So do what? There we go. Oh, that's that is unfortunate. See, she might have it. Okay, well, anyway. Does anybody have a Mac? I mean somebody's
0: gotta
1: know how to take that that mute off. Oh, you know what? Let's try that. Okay. Let's start it over. Because you know, it, it, it sounds like it's a fan favorite. So we'll let Mr. Thank you. Has anybody never heard the song before? Okay. Well, well, sir, can you tell me your name? a little louder. <laughs> Alpha? Okay. So I'll call on you first then. said Alpha, please tell me if I'm saying your name wrong. Alpha. Alpha, would you classify this as hip hop? This song right here? Of what you know of hip hop? Why? Sounds like hip hop. What about it sounds like hip hop? What about it sounds like hip hop? The beat in the rhythm. Okay. Anybody else? Anybody else classify this as hip hop? Yes, sir. Please tell me your name. Ron. Ron, would you classify this as hip hop? Why? It's the sound because there's like a
2: like
0: a
1: I don't know, like like the
0: tempo
1: of it. Okay. Where she's like she's not like actually so into it. Okay. Well she's singing the chorus, but she is rapping the verses. Okay, rapping has rapping has to be hip hop? Okay, I'm just asking, um I saw a hand raise. Sir, please tell me your name. Josh, is this hip hop? Yes. Okay, why? Lyrics? Lyrics. Tell of, of the struggle. So, so someone like Waka Flocka of Flame is not hip hop? He's a
2: section
1: of hip hop. Like I mean, because uh, I mean, he doesn't necessarily talk about the struggle. He talks about oh, let's do it though. <laughs> oh, let's do it. I'm from Atlanta, so I'm kind of familiar. So, would you consider him hip hop then? Okay, okay, because he so he talks about the struggle too. Okay, it's interesting, interesting. Well, we'll stop Ms. Lauren. I know that might break some hearts. The reason why I use Ms. Lauren Hill's doo-wop as an example to first bring this question out is because her label classified that entire album as pop. Now, most people, most fans, and even Lauren will say that is hip-hop, that is quintessential hip-hop. If you want to know what hip-hop is, if the dictionary had audio, you can put that song in and we would all agree that that's hip-hop. But her label says that's pop. And then this group right here, they say they're hip-hop too. But we'll take a listen to them if they'll play. Okay, yes. They start off kind of quiet. They're a brass band. They go by Hypnotic Brass Ensemble. They're a nine-piece band based out of Chicago. They're currently in New York. So they're basically trumpet, trombone, saxophone, a zeusophone, and a drummer. But I'll let it play a little bit. They say they're hip-hop. Ryan, would you say they're hip hop? <laughs> Sounds like a marching band. <laughs> they are—they are a brass band, so that makes sense. That makes sense. You, ma'am, in the plaid. What's your name? Yes, you. I said. <laughs> What's your name? Krista. Would you classify this as hip hop? So if you just heard this, you would not say it's hip-hop. Okay. But anybody having heard this, would you say this is hip-hop? Anybody? Anybody? You're hurting hip-hop brass, uh, hypnotic brass ensemble's feelings. These guys say we're hip-hop, we're quintessential hip-hop, this is, this is what it's about, this is what it sounds like. The whole idea of what hip-hop is is nebulous. It's, it's hard to pin down. It's hard to really get to in concrete terms. It's kind of like what Justice Potter Stewart said in, in um, defining pornography, I know it when I see it. That's how most people describe hip hop. Yeah, I know it when I see it. But for the purpose of this lecture, I'm going to give it a definition. And I call hip hop the global generational defining cultural movement birthed in a deindustrialized climate of the borough of the Bronx, New York, during the post-civil rights era that primarily encompasses four unique cultural expressions, DJing, breaking, breakdancing, graffiti, and rapping. So we can get into a debate all day about what is hip-hop, what is real hip-hop, what is not real hip-hop, and all those types of things and, and the like. But I wanted to kind of center in, bring home a, a, a definition so we understand clearly and succinctly what we're talking about, because hip-hop in and of itself is a cultural expression it embodies more than just music, it it embodies more than just a style of dance. It's it's a larger cultural expression and it primarily manifests itself in these four ways. These are the four ways that we primarily associated, these are are some of the four essential elements, so to speak. And so when we look at these four things, it's easier then to begin this whole idea of classifying, is this hip-hop, is this not hip-hop, and things of that nature, because hip-hop purists seem to routinely Have this whole notion of what is real hip hop, what is not real hip hop. The debate constantly resurfaces and things like that, and so that's why I mentioned the whole waka flocka flame because some people will say, some people will argue vehemently that he is. Some people will argue to the contrary, but we'll save that for a little bit later. And so hip hop, as I mentioned earlier, emerged in the 1970s in the Bronx, but it has its roots in African culture. And by Africa, I'm. I'm sure many of you all know I'm not talking about the whole continent of Africa but I'm primarily speaking of the Western part of Africa I'm talking about West Africa where most of the slaves who were transported (coughs) during the transatlantic slave trade came and I talk about Africa even in that regard and even when we're talking about West Africa I'm not talking about West Africa in a monolith because we're talking about we're talking about several countries we're talking about dozens of languages and people groups we're talking god tree Fanti, Igbo, yoruba and so on and so on and so on and they all have different cultural norms practices rituals and things of that nature but there are essential constant features that are in all of in all of these expression in all African expression primarily in the African expression of of West Africa and so some of these elements are here. We have collective participation, improvisation, and Tiffany, heightened rhythm, tonal language, reinterpretation. And does anybody know what I'm talking about when I talk about collective participation? Waving, speak a little louder, please. <laughs> <laughs> you're excited. It's okay. I, I'm glad <laughs> that you're excited. And okay. And, we, you know, like, just don't care. and if you like fish and grits and all that. okay. <laughs> okay (laughs) indeed so collective participation is a fundamental aspect of African culture West African culture and it's an idea of saying that the presenter is not presenting alone the presenter does not present in a vacuum but the audience participation is a key component to the presentation how many of you all have been to a rap concert and the rapper is on stage and everybody's looking at the rapper and makes no noise there's no clapping, there's no hand raising, there's no dancing, there's no call and response. Now, you, you, you okay, okay um, can, you, can you describe what that concert was like? Well, it was um, a Childish Ambino concert okay. but um, Danny Brown had opened okay. for him and for those of you who don't know Danny Brown, he gets pretty graphic, so <laughs> people were in it for a while but then he started getting too descriptive in certain things and okay. kind of just stopped and... <laughs> Did that make for an awkward moment? Yeah. <laughs> Would you consider that one of the better hip-hop concerts you've been to, better rap concerts you've been to? Well, I love the NBA, so. Let's not, talk about, Mr. <laughs> let's not let's talk about Mr. Glover. Let's talk about Danny for a moment. So you wouldn't consider that a good presentation of rap music, in terms of the audience experience, you as a member of the audience? Mm-hmm. And that's true. So a, in most instances, a rapper can get on stage and rap and, and do what they believe is a, an incredible performance. And the audience may agree. But if the audience waits until the end to show their appreciation, even if it's a standing ovation and everyone says bravo, and you come to, to the back of the stage and say, you did a great job. I really appreciate it. The rapper will feel as though there is some key component missing in the actual presentation of the rapping, because collective participation is a key component in the whole idea of African musical expression. And then we have the idea of improvisation, and that's essentially authoring texts, melodies, and rhythms without prior arrangement, prior rehearsal, things of that nature. And Tiffany is what we, as an, an academic way of talking about call and response when I say hip you say hop hip hop hip hop things like that we take these types of things for granted in hip-hop but these things have are deeply embedded within hip-hop because hip-hop is following a long chain of evolution of African expression and then later African-American expression and then we have heightened rhythm and that one's pretty obvious but again the drum was Key in African culture, and, and particularly within African music, and so the whole idea of, of the drum leading music and the drum leading discussion, even it's, it's, it's to the point that the drum was almost spoken about as a, as an instrument that spoke. And then we have this whole idea of tonation and tonal language, and simply what I mean by that is the whole idea of the way in which an author presents his or her text says just as much in African language as the actual text itself. And so, for instance, in the Diamonds from Sierra Leone remix, if you were to read Jay-Z's lyrics, there's a portion where he says, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman. So if you're looking at that, you're saying, that's really odd. You say, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman. But if you listen to him actually say it, he says, I'm not a businessman, I'm a business man. And so what he's talking about in this instance is, I'm not a man who conducts business, me, myself, as a man, am a business myself. And so this whole idea, <laughs> you just catching it, Dr. Lucky? I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Wow. I know there's a learning curve.
0: A, a really, really big one that I think. <laughs>
1: and that's, that is a perfect opportunity for me to say, if I make a reference to a, a particular artist or a concept, if you don't know what I'm talking about, feel free to ask me questions and things of that nature don't be shy, uh, we, don't, we all don't know everything. And so, and with that said, so th- then what you say and, ha- and is just as important in, in rap and other African expressions as how you say it. Again, regardless of how you may feel about her music, Nicki Minaj is masterful in her delivery. She changes voices, she changes tempo, she, sometimes she sings, sometimes she takes on different voices altogether. And again, (laughs) it might seem nonsensical and she's disparaged greatly for it, but without that probably no one would listen to her. But she has a great command over her voice and over rhythm and pitch and intonation and things like that so that even people who don't like her and will walk away saying she's terrible will still listen to her because of the way in which she's presenting it. And we understand that even now. So like Dr. Lucky said, I have children, I have a daughter. Um, she's about two or so, and she knows there's a difference between come here, this means, oh, come here, give daddy a hug, and come here. And so the second one, the come here, means you're, you're in trouble. Okay, you, you did something, you're doing something that you should not be doing. And so, again, on paper, it's the same two words. Come here. Oh, come here, give daddy a hug. There's that, come here. Then there's the come here, where I'm going to come and get you. And so, <laughs> so many of us understand that difference, and that difference is something that's key, that's a key component, and again, we see that, and we, we see that not only in hip hop, but we see that in the long chain that we're going to follow in just a moment. And then we have the whole idea of reinterpretation, and then that's centered on this whole belief that what comes before us is not, a, is not a foregone memory, but ideas and expressions and things from the past are something that we will relive and experience for ourselves. And so there's, a, there's an idea of we, we preserve the legacy of the ancestors and their memories by not only speaking about them, but also reliving, reliving what was important to them, re-expressing what's important to them, but then reintroducing it in a way that's unique to ourselves. And, and hip-hop is notorious for that. We see that all throughout hip-hop, primarily because hip-hop was an art form, a musical art form, and the musical part of hip-hop was birthed without necessarily a lot of original music. And so we even see that now with the, with the whole idea of sampling. That's this idea of reinterpreting. We're taking prior works and creating new works from it. And so this is a pretty solid example. If I can get this to play, it'll be fantastic because this right here is going to walk through a lot of Kanye West's samples so you'll hear the original work and then you'll hear what he did to it so it won't play the whole thing but you get everything from Shaka Khan to Elton John to a whole lot of people in between. Where Mr. West finds a way to recreate them, reinterpret them, make them his own in such a way that it's still rings true of hip hop and also speaks of who he is as a person in in terms of his musical tastes and preferences and also shows music that's important to him or music that he might have found in a crate somewhere. But I'll stop talking for a moment so we can hear some of these samples. (laughs) Why do you say that? Because some people, I don't know if everyone heard, but he said Kanye is a genius. Some people say Kanye isn't a genius. He just has good taste in terms of music. And he's not a real musician because he doesn't play instruments. He can't necessarily compose. But you say he's a genius. Why is that?
2: Just because he can, because he has the the gift of reinterpretation. Like he can hear it and he can, I guess, listen to it and take it from the past and then reinterpret it and allow us to feel it the way we need to feel it now. So for his brain to think about that and be able to produce that is ingenious to me.
1: Okay. He actually did not make this one. Um, but that's, that's another. That song that right there he didn't make. But I, I agree with you in that Kanye West is your prototypical example of what it means to reinterpret. So because when Kanye samples something, he doesn't lift one part of the song and then just add a bass line and drums to it. But he actually picks it different parts of the song and rearranges it so he's actually making a new composition altogether and that's much of what this is showcasing here
2: I also think he kind of pays tribute as well. While
1: okay. He still pays tribute in my opinion to the past. Okay. So the old use of it while okay. connecting it to new as well. Okay. So that's another part. That has been a point of contention in recent in recent hip-hop in that some people we will say that the artist is paying homage to those who came before him and some people are saying you are stealing my work and you would have no work without me but the idea in and of itself is an African one in this whole idea of taking what came before redoing reinterpreting we can save the debate for a little later and so as I was saying before so we have all these rich cultural traditions that are coming together in different people groups and are manifesting themselves differently but when Africans came in, in the transatlantic slave trade, they're bringing together all of these things, and what, com- what comes from it, again, is this, this essential element, because what you have to remember is they're speaking different languages for, in many instances, they have their sharp differences in cultural practices and the like, but what happens is they're beginning to recognize that there are key elements of the culture that remain so even though they're stripped from their homeland and the artifacts of their culture are no longer remaining you have this whole idea of we're going to keep a hold of what we all share in common and much of that lies within the musical expression because music is a dual articulation of culture so you hear people's learned behavior you hear that, you hear it put together over socially acceptable sounds and so the way Africans were understanding and expressing music and this learned behavior, the way they were converging, there were many similarities that came from it and it created a lot of what then manifested itself in the Americas. And so, by way of example, so during the time of slavery We have this initial manifestation of field field cries, field shouts, field calls. They're called different things, but it's it's the same. And it's simply in the agonizing day of, of shadow slavery and just in the institution of itself and just how demoralizing it was, it evoked a reaction out of people. And this reaction in part, this reaction in part, began to manifest itself in music, and people literally were moaning and making non-intelligible noises and things like that to the point that it was beginning to create music. And then that evolves into these shouts and these groans and these cries, and these things manifest themselves into actual tunes that are assisting in labor, offering instruction in how to perform certain tasks and things of that nature. And you you have these two traditions emerging and evolving for several decades, and then you have the onset of Negro spirituals. And that's Negro spirituals, whereas the amalgamation of these African songs and these African-American songs with, Christ, with the Christian tradition in America. And so as, as missionaries and slave masters and colonists alike are beginning to impose their faith upon these Africans, and there you see this convergence of of European Psalms and hymns and arrangements meeting African songs and what you get is your folk spiritual and so for many who've heard them it's 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 things like I'm building me a home and before I'm a slave another day I'll be buried in my grave and so it's these types of songs that are emerging and so again these same elements that we're talking about before collective participation and Tiffany, improvisation. All of these things are manifesting in each one of these types of music. And what happens later with spirituals is at Fisk University in 1871, the president of the university wants to, was trying to raise money for the university. And one of the ways he saw in in doing that was creating a chorale. And they were singing Negro spirituals and in your typical repertory of of choral songs and the like and but one of the things that they did to spirituals was they arranged them in ways that conform to European norms of singing and so the, so they turned these songs then took on a more classical arrangement in terms of chord structure and progression and even pronunciation of certain words and things of that nature and what happened is it became wildly popular and the Fisk Jubilee singers began touring the nation and then later on touring the world and they sparked a tradition that is still alive and well and and historically black colleges and universities in the country now and it also sparked a fierce debate because you had some people saying that these spirituals when you arrange them you're preserving the relics of the culture and you're keeping a key part of the experience of slavery and you're keeping it alive and passing it to future generations in the same way as you hang up a painting and put it in a museum And then some people say, in arranging these spirituals to conform to European norms of musical presentation and the like, you're stripping it of its very essence. And you're now taking something that was uniquely African and you're conforming it to external factors, and those external factors are changing it. And we see that in hip-hop right now. So when certain artists ascend to a certain point and they begin to conform their sound to sound more popular, so to speak, and people disparage them and say they are hip-hop, hip-pop, rather than hip-hop. And they're saying, so the essence of the struggle, the essence of the expression is no longer there, and you stripped it of what made it what it actually is. And a prime example of that could be Lupe Fiasco. And so for those of you who might be familiar, Lupe Fiasco is signed to Atlantic Records. And so Atlantic Records saw that he was doing pretty successful with his first two albums but they felt like his material was going over the head of the general listener and so they said okay for your third album we need something that's more palatable for the radio you need some more singing more up-tempo stuff stop using SAT words and so <laughs> and so it, it, it turned into this long protracted battle and so he finally acquiesced um, to their demands and he, he released an album called Lasers And so, during that process, he was really disgruntled and everything like that, and he began working on another project, which was a project which he released about two weeks ago called Food and Liquor 2, The Great American Rap Album. And so, hip-hop purists, when he released "Laser," said, that's not hip-hop, that's not the Lupe we know. You're dumbing down your lyrics, you're fusing your sound with other genres, and you're, you're moving the very essence of what we liked you for, and you're not using SAT words anymore. And so, but... Again, so the problem with that, with that is that Lupe's label, Atlantic Records, is a corporation, and they're looking at profit margins, and they looked at the whole idea of his album, is more than double the sales of his, his current release, and so they're saying, Lupe, next time around, lose the SAT words. And so then we have Ragtime, which is the next stage in evolution of of African music and things like that, uh, African music in America, and we're beginning to see syncopated rhythms and the introduction of musical instruments. And, and then from there, at the turn of the 19th century, we're beginning to see the blues emerge on plantations and things of that nature, and the blues was capturing a way of life. Blues singers were, were like preachers, they were like their spokesmen and spokeswomen of the community, things of that nature. and. The blues was now taking this introduction of instruments that we see with ragtime, slowing down the pace, changing scales and things like that to conform to changing times, but it's still capturing the essence of the expression. And then from there we see the emergence of jazz that, that begins as purely instrumental music, and that's primarily adopting the introduction of new instruments and things like that. so as African-Americans are beginning to interact with different peoples in different parts of the country and they're beginning to see different musical instruments are taking on different tastes and and the music is adapting to a degree and we're continuing this evolution and then we get to gospel music which is sacred music that emerged in an urban context that is that is merging the Christian faith with this long progression of African music and in that we're still retaining much of what we talked about before with this whole idea of cultural retention and things like that. I want to give you an example. So the two songs I have up there are the same song. One is Julie Collins' rendition of Amazing Grace. We'll listen to a little bit of that if I can get it to play. No, Julie, please play. Judy, not Julie. Okay, let's try this. My apologies for these complications. Is something playing? Let's try again. Slideshow. There we go. Thank you, doctor. So Judy Collins is a folk singer who repopularized Amazing Grace in the modern era. In America, this was a, a really popular song during the Reconstruction era. And this version here got people excited about the song again. you said it's troubling you it's really funny you say that because um, people in my class say the same thing and so that's that's Judy Judy Collins rendition her entire version of the song is about three minutes and 55 seconds she sings it pretty plainly and within I believe a minute she has gone through the first verse and and the chorus what I will play for you in contrast is Aretha Franklin's rendition of was supposed to be the same song Come on Aretha, let's try this again. I don't know why it's doing this to me. This is working great at home. There we go, let's try that. It's, yes. Her version is ten minutes.
0: Aretha. Where does this recording come from, this ten
1: minute This is a live recording that she did at a Kojik Church, I believe in Chicago. Okay. Kojik
0: means
1: Kojik is thank you. Is is Church of God in Christ is it is a outshoot of the Pentecostal movement within the black church. And the Pentecostal movement emerged during the holiness movement of the Reconstruction Era. We'll talk about that more in just a moment, but here we go. It takes a little while to get warmed up. An obvious difference initially is that Aretha does have a choir backing her up. but We're also going to hear elements of what the text calls melodic ornamentation. And if you don't know what that means, what she's doing right now is melodic ornamentation. The runs, the bends, the grunts, the moans, and pretty soon you'll hear the audience saying things like that as well so at this point we're at about the 45 second mark by this point Judy Collins has already sung amazing grace how sweet the sound to save the wretch like me and Aretha still on the word amazing and do a little more. Okay, we'll, we'll keep going. But I believe we, we see the point in Aretha. I mean, I would take us to church and let us hear the whole 10 minutes, but uh, in the interest of time, I, <laughs> I do want to keep moving. Um, but essentially, this each one of these genres, those that come before and those that come after, while they're changing in tone and rhythm and, and sound and even the use of the types of instruments, things that remain the same are these core elements that are unique to African culture. This whole idea of antiphony, the call and response, the improvisation, the communal participation, the heightened rhythm, all of these R&B, soul, funk, go-go, disco, all of these, all of these genres are embodying these characteristics because African-Americans are simply reinterpreting, they're rehearsing, they're representing these same ideas, these same traditions, these same rituals that they've been hearing and as times change, as environments change, as introduction of technology is brought upon these things come, they emerge, the sound shifts slightly but the cultural expression remains the same. And then we come to the South Bronx. So the South Bronx was a, di- it was a diverse place in the 1950s. You had, different, you, had different people, you had people of different socioeconomic backgrounds. You had different races and ethnicities. But there was a grand plan to change the South Bronx by Robert Moses. And his plan was devised in 1929, but it took a while to implement it. And that change was to create the Cross Bronx Highway. And what that did was that literally divided the Bronx in half and created an expressway that would allow people to come from New Jersey to Manhattan and go from Queens to Manhattan back and forth in 15 minutes. And it's just a seven-mile stretch of land, but when it comes, it radically changes the environment of the South Bronx. And one of the ways it, it does it is it completely destroys the industry and the the economic landscape of this, of this area because people of means then escape from one side of the Bronx to the other and go to other parts of the city and then people without means are then left with the loss of 600,000 jobs an income that's half of the people in the rest of New York and 40 percent of the national average and then what were once flourishing apartment buildings now being turned over to slumlords who are realizing that it's more cost effective to not provide residents with heat and electricity and at times running water, let buildings squalor and, and, and become vacant and then burn them down and collect insurance money. And so that creates an entire economy in and of itself, this whole idea of insurance fraud and, and allowing buildings to become dilapidated and, and, and forcing people out. And with this crumbling economy, and these external pressures coming upon the Bronx, you still have a large mass of African Americans and other people groups in this area of the Bronx, and so they're still creating the, recreating these traditions and things like that in the midst of abject poverty, increases in violence, and things like that, and by 1977 the Bronx is burning. You have um, riots and and people were, and after, after the end of the World Series, you had people burning buildings. It was a war zone. And it was in this environment that Mr. Campbell, Cool Herc, and his sister in 1973 decided that we want to have a party. And in having a party, Miss Cindy wants to look fly for school. Cool Herc wants the world to know his name. They both succeeded in their endeavors. But... And so doing, they also preserve this legacy of African culture. You have this whole idea of improvisation going on and, and reinterpretation and tonal language and, and Tiffany. All these things were emerging in this party because what's happening in early hip-hop is there's, there's, there, are no, there are no instruments. There are no guitars and drums and, and bass and pianos and things like that. Cool Herc and DJs like him are basically taking turntables and they've realized that disco and go-go and funk music are the primary music that people like to dance to in this time because they've got great rhythm sections. If you've heard of James Brown and Sly and the Family Stone and, and P-Funk and Parliament and all of that, then you understand that those are the types of things that people were dancing to at that time. And what they realized is these types of songs also had a section that was called the breakbeat. And essentially, it was a part where the rhythm section, the drums, the bass, and sometimes the piano would have solos, and people would save their best dances or dance the hardest during these points. And so what Cool Herc and DJs like him discovered is why play the whole song if people are only dancing during that 30 second, 45 second minute period? Why not just play breakbeats? And so what Cool Herc would do is he would scour record collections and look for these breakbeats and just play the breakbeats. And, and so, as this was happening, he would go from song to song, record to record, just playing breakbeats, and people are dancing just to these breakbeats rather than the whole song. So, and people, as people are dancing, the DJ needs to do something to keep engaging the crowd. So the DJ would make things up off the top of his or her head, but primarily his during this time, and and try to do things and chants and calls and responses, and sometimes either even uh, impromptu lyrics. kind of engage the crowd. And what DJs were beginning to discover is there are some guys who are better at this than others who could create lyrics out of thin air, produce things off the top of their heads, so to speak. And so they started letting these guys rap over the breakbeats. And so in rapping over the breakbeats now you have the emergence of this culture phenomenon that we call rap music. And people are doing it in parks, recreation centers and things like that. For six, uh, six, seven years when someone stumbles into a nightclub in New York, Sylvia Robinson and some of her colleagues, and they find Wonder Mike and some of his friends, and they bring them together, record Rapper's Delight, and then the world is now introduced to this art form, and the rest is as they say. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is hip-hop of American folk art birthed in Africa. Do I have any questions?
0: I actually have a question. Yes, ma'am. I was thinking when you were talking about these kinds of discrepancies that come up about what is hip-hop, and I'm really interested in that because it's what, it's what, it's what gospel music is experiencing, and that's, that's where my, that's where my um, expertise is, is in gospel music, I, I'm one of the people, I've never heard that song, I don't. I know Sugar Hill game, and that's probably <laughs> where my expertise is uh, open, um, in terms of hip hop. But you know, I'm really interested in that in this whole question about um, discrepancy because it's very frustrating to me. I'm I'm what you would call a purist, I guess, in terms of gospel yes. music. And I'm really interested in, <coughs> in what happens when we can't define a genre okay. when other genres don't seem to have that problem. I know what you mean. Do you get my question? I do know what you mean like, like, and, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe, for example, classical musicians are having these similar kinds of discussions, and I just don't know that those kinds of vehement discussions are going on, <laughs> but among gospel musicians, these are real issues about That's what
1: called is called gospel and what isn't. And, and you, you offer a great point, particularly when you, when you have the whole introduction of gospel rap. Yeah. Because, and for, for those who are a bit unfamiliar, particularly the black church has, has um, hesitated or at least shunned the whole idea of fusing the sacred and the secular. And so anytime something sounds too much like something that is not, Sacred does not sound like something holy, so to speak. Then those types of things, those types of sounds, and and their responses and things of that nature become problematic. And my response is that what is what is heralded as traditional gospel music is coming from this long line of evolution of of genres that come before. It. And so, so gospel is coming from jazz and blues and and field shouts and work songs and things like that. It's coming from all of those things and even borrowing ideas from soul and things like that. So I said all that to say gospel in and of itself is an amalgam mm-hmm. of things that came before it. And it's natural as genres emerge to then to take on elements of things that, that, are, that are new and, and cutting edge and things of that nature. I agree that I, what I believe then, the issue then stems from the idea of then traditional and contemporary. Mm-hmm. because I, And I think that's where the, the heart of the purist lies because the purest want the traditional gospel sound to be that sound that was cemented from the time of maybe Mahalia Jackson to maybe the time of the Clark sisters. That, that good old gospel music, um, choirs, you've got your hockhead, you've got you've got three chord harmonies, and you've got certain tempos and things of that nature. And I said all that to say that it's, it's a difficult thing, but it's going, but genres are going to emerge and they're going to introduce new ideas and things of that nature, particularly with the idea of gospel, My contention is that if the content is the same, if the content is still sacred, if the content is still speaking of the good news of Jesus Christ, so to speak, because that's what the word gospel means, then it can still be gospel music.
0: So, I guess my question about the the problem, what you were talking about in terms of hip hop, when does hip hop stop being hip hop? That's a great
1: question. It's, It's a great question, and there are hip hop artists who don't have an answer for that. But what I would say is, when hip-hop loses, one of the, when it begins to lose those four elements, the rapping, the DJing, the, the, um, the breaking, graffiti, when it's beginning to separate from some of those core elements. So if you don't have rapping in it, I'm already beginning to question whether it's hip-hop. And then two, we're then beginning to look at your core essence of sounds and things like that so you have your your 808 drum pattern or your three-fourth time signature um, the inclusion of DJ scratching things like that when you're beginning to move away from those sounds and you're infusing more more sounds from other genres then that's that's when the line is blurred in my class when we have this discussion I bring in examples of Andre 3000's Hey Ya or Lil Wayne's How to Love or um, Drake's Marvin's Room and for those who don't know what I'm talking about these are all three artists who were introduced to the world as rappers. And the majority of their catalog, they're rapping over stereotypical hip hop. If you heard it down the street, you'd say that's hip hop. And then with those three particular instances, they're literally singing the entire song. And Andre 3000's song is kind of like a reinterpretation of Beatles sound. Uh, Lil Wayne has kind of got like an indie rock sound going. And Drake's kind of got an R&B sound going and his, and his and, and with, with regard to his song, when I say those three songs, I would not necessarily classify them as hip-hop, even though the artist who does it primarily is a hip-hop artist, because I, begin, I believe that they've now stretched past that line of, of the whole idea of hip-hop, what is hip-hop, what is, what is it at its core. And I believe you can have singing in a hip-hop song, obviously, but they, I believe those songs are too much of a deviation into other genres, particularly with the types of instrumentation, the mood, the tempo, Style of play, things of that nature. Yes, sir. I, I um,
2: <coughs> I think the irritation that I have with the idea of discrepancy is, like instance, you just said you wouldn't classify those three, those three songs as hip hop. Um, but if you, I think that same album, Missy, Drake's one of the songs, where he raps on that, I think, I don't know the same album, but I, I think I know what you're about. So That's, would you class, Yes or no, would you classify that as hip-hop? Probably so. So and what irritates me about that is, I would just classify that as rap. Like So you were asking some of the questions, like, Hill, is that hip-hop, so-and-so um, so, 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 is that you know, hip-hop. I don't look at it as hip-hop. Because it's not hip-hop if you don't have those four elements. It's rap. Rap is part of Rap is an element. offshoot of hip-hop. Right. So it's like, it's not, I, I, I think what irritates me is how people take the, the phrase and use it to, um, uh, describe the whole, or or describe a small part, so use the whole to describe a small part, or or just, or just misuse the word, misuse the word um, at all, like the word retarded, for instance. You know, it it means to slow up, to, it means to hold up, or to slow down, or hold back, so to speak. So, if I, I think you understand where I'm going, it's not a saying? bad word, it's just how we use the word. Indeed. So. What irritates me is how we take the
1: word hip-hop and put it where a song when it's the culture all for it. It, Indeed, and hip-hop is more of a description of a larger cultural expression. Mm-hmm. And so when I say is a song hip-hop, I'm more so saying is it articulating that cultural expression? Because you can be, like you're saying, you can rap, so to speak, and not necessarily embody the full cultural expression but this whole what is real hip-hop has been there since its inception there were guys in the Bronx when Rapper's Delight was released and say who are these guys they're from Jersey ooh Jersey I've never heard of them before and they're rapping they even stole someone else's lyrics and how are they on the radio and we're not and how are you gonna have a hip-hop song and it's only 15 minutes who's rocking a party for 15 minutes what party do you go to that's only 15 minutes and so so initially most people who were hip-hop purists in the beginning never thought that you could commodify hip-hop to the point that it would reach radio and reach television so this this whole debate has been circling for decades. I saw a handover in this area. Yes sir.
2: So can we for the purposes of this discussion agree that the brass band isn't. (laughs) Yes.
1: Certainly, well again (laughs) See, the thing is, I think, I think the determination would be more difficult if somebody were rapping to the music, because I, I, I certainly believe you could rap to that music. And so, partic- and in the rhythm section, particularly the drum and the sousaphone are influenced by hip-hop, while the, horn- while the other horns are more, have more of a jazz feel. So, I would, say, and I would say it's more of a fusion of jazz and hip-hop, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's I wouldn't preclude the classification of hip-hop, I just wouldn't say it's the best example. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am.
0: What's your opinion on like, the booming like, white rap culture and, like, that's rel- and that relationship
1: to the I think it's a natural um, evolution because hip-hop has gone into communities across the world. And not only, so it's, it's, it's emerged beyond the South Bronx. And so um, with the whole white rapper phenomenon, I look at it the same way I look at all rappers. Is your music an authentic representation of who you are as a person? And so I don't expect someone like Asher Roth to rap like someone like The Game because they have very different upbringings and different experiences. But in terms of can they be a part of the hip hop culture, most certainly. They're they're a part of the hip hop generation, the music speaks to them as well. And so again, my, the, the challenge I always offer is is your music authentic? So, by way of example, Dwayne Carter, Dwayne Michael Carter, and we all know him as Little Wayne, he's been a professional musician since he's 11. But he talks about he's a Crip or no blood or whatever. You talk about killing people and all this that and the third and like on one instance I'm, I'm a multimillionaire and I have more money than everybody in the entire room and then on the other instance it's just like you know I'll break your jaw and and do awful things to women that you care about and and you know I'm in this gang and I'll kill you and all these other foolishness and that's that's not authentic you know it's like like Wayne take those teardrops off your face because you haven't you haven't killed anybody and so
2: <laughs> yeah, then that seems to raise the issue then, you know, between this genre as any other musical genre and this attempt we seem to be making to, to make a connection between that genre and you know, just a way of, of saying or producing music and what we consider to be lifestyle. Do we expect that of every artist? When we listen to Josh Groban, for example, um, singing you, you Raise Me Up or whatever, do we necessarily expect him to, you know, is there a particular kind of lifestyle or any particular kind of conduct we expect of him because he sings a kind of music? I,
1: I believe hip-hop slightly differs in that regard from most genres, particularly because there's always a presumption that a hip-hop artist authors their own lyrics. There's an expectation that you create your own lyrics and because hip-hop emerged primarily as a form of self-expression, particularly from those who had nothing or have very little to lose, it then be, it was supposed to be an authentic representation of who you were. This is who I am. These are the types of things I do. Now, granted, there was, there was definitely boasting and things like that, but I believe that hip-hop places a different expectation, or at least it says it places a different expectation on this artist, whereas an R&B artist can sing about being single and be married, and we don't necessarily care the same way we do about rappers, so to speak.